Welcome back to another episode of Anne Asks, a podcast where I, your host, Anne Lee, attempt to uncover genuine human stories by bringing on a variety of interesting guests and interviewing them. Today, the date of recording is July 31st, 2020, and today I have uh, two guests from my Greek mythology course at Stanford Summer Session, which is sadly online this year. Uh, Yassi, Yassi Lau and Annalise Russell. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for um, joining me today and thank you for uh, spending some time to talk to me about Greek mythology, which I've always been, I've always wanted to have on my podcast. Um, maybe you can introduce yourselves a little bit, just like who you are, where you're from, and then we can dive right in. Um, I can go first, I guess. Um, I'm Yazzie. I'm from New York City. And um, I guess, like, maybe how I like, got into Greek mythology. Um, I started reading about Greek myths when I was probably, like, eight. Um, because people would bring Duller's book of Greek mythology um, to our homeroom and then read stories and be like, I'm gonna check it out in the library next, and it was this whole thing. Um, and then the Percy Jackson series came along, um, and everyone was obsessed with that, so I was too. And then I started taking Latin classes in seventh grade. Um, so things just escalated from there, I guess. I started reading like translations of like primary sources, I guess. Um, and yeah. Emily's. Um, so I'm from Brazil. Um, it's I'm from a town called Belo Horizonte. So um, I'm 16. I'm a rising senior. I started taking Latin as well, like four years ago. Um, and then I just started like translating, just like Cassie said, like the original sources. So I was already really interested in myths, at, like because I had this. Um, illustrated books when I was little that told those bits like Prometheus and Pandora, the Medusa. And so I was like obsessed with it. Then came Percy Jackson and the Chronicles of Can. And so I just got really into mythology, like Norse mythology, uh, Egyptian, Greek. So the obsession just grew. And then when I started taking Latin, it was really supported by it because my teacher she really likes um having us translating this source of myths like uh atlantas and all of those like latin versions of it so and uh that's so great that you guys introduced how you were first interested in greek myths because that was actually my first question um i was also going to share a little bit about my own story basically uh, it's similar um i was introduced to greek mythology from stories uh, that were made, uh, retellings that were made to, you know, get the interest of younger readers. Uh, obviously, Percy Jackson, I have my copy here. Um, obviously, that was a major role, but even before Percy Jackson, there was a series, I don't know if you guys heard of it, called Goddess Girls. I've heard um, of it. Yeah. I've heard of it, I've heard of it. I was obsessed with it. It was before Percy Jackson. Here is um, the first book. It's 
called Athena the Brain. And basically the story is um, these four goddesses, they all go to like a boarding school or university or something. I think it's Athena, Artemis, Aphrodite, and Persephone. And they're all friends. And it's basically about their adventures. <laughs> it was really fun for me when I was in like third grade. Um, so those kind of things got me interested. And one of my uh, earliest memories was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, I was in the Greek and Roman wing. And I remember like running through and like trying to name all the gods and goddesses depicted on the jars and ceramics and statues. And after that moment of just like seeing all of those artifacts, I was like, oh, this is something that I'm really interested in. But one question I had for you guys was how now obviously that you've started reading more of the original sources and then taking uh, more advanced classes like this college course right now, how your perspective and understandings of the myth uh, developed or changed um, over time? Yeah, I think a lot of the kitty renditions of myths leave out um, a ton of like the ambiguity in myths. So for example, like Hercules, which we talked about in class, um, has all of this stuff where he's unfortunate and fortunate and having like superhuman strength, but he's always kind of a slave to other people who are definitely like less powerful than him. Um, and he's like humiliated into being like effeminate and whatnot. Um, and like Theseus and Jason are also like kind of jerks as well as heroes. Um, and there are a lot of endings that like are not really happy endings that in like um, a bunch of kitty renditions are kind of like, on them they lived happy ever after, happily ever after. Uh, like Theseus just leaves Ariadne on like Naxos and that's the whole thing. Um, so I'd say like, yes, it's obviously more complicated. Um, but also, I think how connected it is to Greek culture um, and its purpose in Greek culture is a huge thing that I've learned. Um, because like when you're a kid and you're reading about Percy Jackson and whatnot, you're kind of just more concerned on like all the action and the plot and less on like the nuances of the characters um, and how they funnel into like legitimizing certain themes in Greek society. Um, but now that I'm taking, like, this course at Stanford, it's more, like, focused on that. Yeah, because we're seeing it, like, through a more mature lens than we had seen it before in Percy Jackson and those sorts of things. And I really liked one thing that you said, that uh, we can approach, like, the complexity of all the myths, like Medea that she was always portrayed like as a bad guy, as a villain who did all those bad things. And then when we actually see what Euripides had actually written, we can see that she was more than just a villain. She was also a victim. And there's this whole complex background behind it. And I am really loving to explore all of this and also to like, um, be able to do this close readings that I had never encountered before in my life, that we can now see the hymns, we can really, like, I'm, I'm able now to identify who's it for, 
uh, and like uh, what are the purposes of whoever wrote it, why, and then the whole structure of giving something to the gods to get something back that I had never really like focused on. And I think that's it. And I think for me, there's like two ways to it. One of it is obviously uh, rather than just like the plot and characters itself, we get to really think about the concepts and implications and assumptions behind it. So more like a conceptual way, but also reading like the original source material translated um, is actually a lot more fun than I thought. Like I thought it would be kind of archaic and boring, but actually it's a lot more dynamic and a lot like the details that um, they, that are written in it, it makes the stories even richer, I feel like, and more dramatic, and even the, even the descriptions of the characters, what they go through, their emotions, all of that is just heightened, I feel like, if you read the original source, rather than read, um, like, a textbook description of them, what happens to them. So, yeah, that's um, some of the ways that... Uh, our understanding of Greek mythology is deepening. Um, and I also wanted to ask about if you guys were involved in any other extracurricular activities on your own that are classics related. I know, yeah, see, you have like a classics club, I heard. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm one of the co-heads of the classics club at my school. Um, so it's pretty low key. Basically, we come in um, and every week we'll have either a discussion about some topic in like Rome or Greece. So for instance, like one of my favorite ones is inclusivity in classics. Um, so we'll talk about a few articles and like our opinions on it. And then uh, some weeks we'll have more like fun game sort of things. So kind of a club favorite is Kahoot. Um, what other things have we done? We had a Lego architecture building competition with another school um, where we basically had like an hour to build one structure and then give a presentation on like its history and then teachers judged on which one was the most like historically accurate and also like looked good and had a good presentation. Um, and then I also volunteer with ICORA, which is this organization for like classical outreach with a focus on Latin. So basically they give you a packet and they're like, go teach kids. So um, I show up to like the East Harlem school um, every week and just go through this packet, which has a lot of like mythology and history and a little bit of Latin. Um, and I'm kind of just trying to get the kids like introduced to this because they otherwise like wouldn't have access to learning about classics. And one thing that I like to do beyond the packet is kind of get kids to think it's more like tangible than it is. Because I think a lot of times when you read these stories, they seem like super untouchable and intangible. And it's like your take on it doesn't even really matter because it's just so old. Um, so one thing I try to do with the kids is like, get it on their level almost. <laughs> um, so kids will be like, oh my god, like Horace, is he like the ancient Billie Eilish or something like that? And I don't know, I just, I really love it when they do things like that because it really means like 
they don't see this as untouchable and they can like make their own theories on it and they'll be like oh like this guy is an absolute jerk and I'm like yes like say that that's cool (laughs) um so yeah that's one reason why I love that and then a few days ago I joined this thing called the Nova Musa Collective um which is this semester-long program online um which is like a mentorship program where middle schoolers and high schoolers can like receive kind of a classical education but it's more like focused on the arts um so like literally any medium of the arts and you have like one class in classics per week and then up to three i think in the arts and i'm the associate director of classical mentorship so i'm kind of just helping design the curriculum and making sure we're recruiting like good mentors and whatnot so i'm super excited for that um i haven't done much yet for that but I feel like I should have gone first because now I'm like humiliated. Oh <laughs> no! <laughs> Wait, before you go, I have a question for Yassi. Um, so the kids you are teaching, are they from like a particular group or particular school or from your school? Yeah, they're from the East Harlem school. Um, so most of them are from like low income backgrounds and most of them are Latino or Latina. Um, I have like one Asian kid and I'm like, we can relate, but yeah. Um, So a lot of the packet kind of parallels with Spanish, um, which is good, even though I don't know Spanish, but a lot of the kids will see roots and they'll be like, oh, like I know that one, um, which is cool. Oh, that's so cool. Um, I was thinking like, that's so amazing because, you know, classics and mythology and history even sometimes has the um, reputation for being elitist and, you know, historically for the elite only and, you know, only those who have the luxury of studying such, um, like, artistic or philosophical studies uh, can uh, have access to that. And I, I, I'm so, that's so incredible that you were doing that. And also, I have to thank you for the numerous resources that you sent me. <laughs> which hopefully, um, I'm sure they'll help me in my AP research, which is um, about Greek mythology. But yeah, Annalise, you, you can go, it's okay. Um, uh, if you don't have anything, I don't do anything outside of um, this course. So, you know, that's totally fine. Yeah, I just have like some projects. They're not official as Yassi's, it's just like a couple of plays that we produce. Like we write all of the script in Latin like me and a couple of people from um, my class. And then we go out in the streets, um, like presenting it and doing this kind of like improvised plays. We did. (laughs) Wait, do you say it in Latin? Like do you speak and do the play in Latin? We we study in a different method that's called method natura. It's really like growing in Italy. And my teacher, she spent, she's Italian, so she spent like three months there learning everything that she could have. That's like really, really nice because it's an immersive program. So you have to live in this place, speak only Latin, and there's this really rigid schedule of things that you have to do. So she did this three month months intensive program and then she came back to teach us. And it's amazing because she, she was the one who asked us to do this for the first time, and then we just wanted to do it more. And my school kind of incentivated us. 
and then we appeared on the television one time and it was that is so cool did they film you guys presenting yeah i was you know pygmalion um we did this and i was the statue <laughs> we did all of those and, and we do like in our scripts we kind of get inspired by works that we've seen before so we got like uh catulo's um hymn for lesbos that's like oh love of my life and these sorts of things and then uh we just had a lot of fun so you guys want to make sure that everyone knew that like this was a thing <laughs> so you guys actually write the scripts original scripts based on these stories yeah that's so cool. Wait, you were the statue um, that turns into life? It, that is, yeah. That's the story of Pygmalion. Yeah, Pygmalion, he was this like great sculpture and then he hated women, like he hated women. And one day he was building a statue that it was supposed to be like the most beautiful woman of all time. And then he, I, I think a god or goddess sent some sort of thing like magic upon him that he fell in love with the statue and so he was, he was desperately in love with her and then he went to the gods and said like please please just let her come to life but he was so disrespectful before but then anyways later on they granted her like the gift of life and then they lived happily ever after so cool. Um, yeah, what you guys do are, is amazing. It's like inspiring because, you know, I don't do anything. <laughs> so it's embarrassing and inspiring at the same time. But another cool thing that you guys both do is learn Latin, the language. And um, I, I've always been fascinated with it. But, but um, I'm wondering if you guys can share what it's like learning Latin and maybe some, some of the qualities of it like differences between latin and other languages some idiosyncrasies of latin itself and yeah things like that so i took french um starting in ninth grade no <laughs> seventh through ninth sorry um and latin starting in seventh um going through senior year so i'm going senior year um, so I guess I can talk about, like, similarities between the two. Like, going into it, um, I really thought I was gonna mix them up a lot, but I didn't really. Like, there was one time on a French test where I wrote down, like, open instead of C for the entire test, because it looks like, um, the Latin verb, and, you know, that's, like, the only time I've really mixed them up, like, that badly, but, um otherwise I'd say Latin grammar when you start off is very like straightforward there aren't that many exceptions um to the rules it's kind of just like these are the endings you tack on some vowel in between um for verbs and whatnot but for French it's like here are the 20 exceptions to this rule so it's like not really a rule <laughs> um and you're kind of like great and pronunciation is also pretty straightforward in Latin it's like all these are W's of men. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much the only hard one. Um, C's are all pronounced like K's. Um, but for French, it's like you see a vowel, you see five consonants, you pronounce one. It's like <laughs> very difficult. And obviously, you don't speak Latin. Or, like, I guess you can. Um, my school doesn't have a very big focus on spoken Latin, so we generally don't. Um, 
also the vocab that you're introduced to um, early on in Latin. It's very much like we went on a voyage and died. And then in French, it's like, hello, how are you? My name is Yazzie and I like bagels. Um, and it's like, you don't get that in Latin. Like, I don't think I knew how to say hello until like three months in, which is totally not something you would do in a modern language. Um, and then I think you get into literature like relatively quickly because that's why most people learn Latin. Um, so yeah, I think analyzing it, it's much more like an English class because you're not like expected to write papers in Latin, um, whereas other modern languages, you'd probably be expected to like write it in that language. Um, so yeah, oh, there's also no word order. So everything's really dependent on the ending. So you can like flip it up and it's not really a huge problem when you're still working with like the textbook so I did the Cambridge Latin series um and it's pretty like consistent all the way through and then you get thrown into like Caesar and he just doesn't care about word order <laughs> um so yeah it's kind of like you circle the verb and then you underline the noun and then you draw a bunch of arrows so it can get complicated um but overall I really like it I kind of just think of it like a puzzle sometimes <laughs> I was trying to bridge my book that we used because it's this one and it's really different from what Yasu just described because I have a lot of languages classes in my school. I have like Portuguese, English, um, Spanish, Latin, French, it just, it goes Italian and they're all like in the same route kind of and so I, I, I confuse a lot, like I get a lot confused because Portuguese and Latin and Italian are like the same thing, but <laughs> Latin is much more archaic. So uh, I mess up so much in tests, like exchanging a word for another. And we have a really different style of classes because we use like this one and another one that's called Familia Romana. That's like a Roman family. And it's still like the day-to-day -day life. Like, oh, this one fell from a tree, a tree, and then this one's going to school, and then we'll learn how to say like, I don't know, basic sentences of how to live if you're a Latin person, like if you're living in Rome. <laughs> um, and I think it's really like nice to do that, especially because then we go to the literature part, because we have like grammar classes and literature, they're separate. Cause then we look at like Caesar's and Cicero's um, writings and they were so different but then be why, because we like get to know how to form a sentence and how to write and speak it becomes a bit like easier um, to really understand what they're trying to say with their writings and I just love it. Alice, how many languages do you speak? Can you speak? Okay, so I, I think there are six, because I speak Portuguese, Italian, English, uh, Spanish, uh, Latin, French, and I'm starting to learn German, because my family is from Germany, oh. and I'm <laughs> You know, Latin has this notorious reputation for being like an archaic or like dead language, 
So I was wondering, um, as you learn it, what are some of the uses um, of Latin in either your academic or everyday life? Some of the connections you notice when you learn that language? Yeah, so for me, it really like gave me a perspective of my own language because I like started noticing what words that I use in Portuguese that are actually that come from Latin. And I was like, oh my God. And I just really got deeper into the language that I speak. And the same goes for Italian. And also in essays and things like that, I can use like some expressions and things that I learned in Latin that actually um, describe really better than just like regular expressions in the language that I was first like trying to do it and besides that just reading the original texts I think it's a real difference when you read the like the original one and it's an original language in like this philological kind of way that you really get like the order that the author chose and the words the exact vocabulary because then it, it just I think it hides a lot of what the author was really trying to pass on with its work. Yeah, it's actually like, you know, some of the essays that we were reading in our Greek mythology class, they really focus on the language and the specific word they used, and then the specific uses of that word in other situations, and they compared it and then took the significance of that word from that kind of process. So I thought that was really interesting and um, quite a shame that uh, I have to read it in English, but yeah. Uh, what about you, Yassi? Yeah, I'd say the one that people like bring up the most is vocab. Um, and it was definitely fun, like my first year of Latin to pick out like vocab words um, that I knew that like linked back to Latin. Um, I like loved doing that, um, especially in biology, because that came up like all the time. Um, and then I guess the main thing I think now is probably critical thinking. Um, because, like, the more you engage with different texts, the more you're going to have, like, different takes on them based on the original language and, like, the words they use, etc. Um, I think a big debate that people have on, like, a lot of texts is, like, whether they were satirical or not, or, like, whether certain authors were, like, dancing around the issue of, like, rape or not, I'm thinking of Ovid in particular. Um, but, yeah, like, having the ability to like make your own take on that is um great like I love doing that um yeah and all of that like structures that you put into grammar and all that time um you spend like learning different like subjunctive clauses and um verb tenses and whatnot like carries over into writing in English so I'd say like I'm definitely more aware of how like I use my own language in English um yeah and speaking of Latin um our course recently we started diving into the Roman myth and I was wondering if we can talk a little bit about the differences similarities between Roman and Greek myths and can you tell them apart if the names were not different a bit okay oof because I don't know theme wise but I can say like societally I guess um Roman mythology is kind of like Greek it's just Greek mythology but like slightly different I'm I haven't like looked at the themes too much 
Um, but I know that, like, the Aeneid, it kind of follows the Odyssey in a way. Um, a lot of people on the internet like to say it's just, like, Virgil making his, like, fan fiction of the Odyssey uh, with a different character. I think, like, one thing about Aeneas in particular, like, as a hero, is he's kind of like an anti-hero in a way. He just, like, is kind of weak and not up to the job, but he does it anyway. Um, like, leaving Dido, he just leaves her and he's like, oops, that's fine. Um, and then he's, like, in a panic leaving Troy and whatnot and I remember reading that last year and being like wow he's he's kind of pathetic um so that's a thing that you don't really see in Greek mythology a lot like a lot of the heroes kind of just take their heroism and they're like cool I'm a hero now um and Aeneas like really isn't like that um I'd say like Virgil kind of gave Dido like some agency later in like book six um but early on I like kind of hated her because <laughs> it seems like um Aeneas is like her entire world but then like later she rejects him and I'm like <laughs> yeah but um, I mean, he was shot by Cupid's arrow so he can't really blame yeah, her <laughs> um oof. and then in the metamorphoses um I think the central theme of that is really like the metamorphoses of like people changing into trees that's a common one I'm thinking we'll call it Daphne um bunches of animals and whatnot a lot of times for making mistakes um so I think it kind of just carries over the whole like didactic thing of teaching people like what to do and what not to do through um poems and whatnot and I think we're gonna have a discussion on that coming up about um again like the politics of rape and mythology and whatnot um because Ovid especially like focuses on love and different like portrayals of that um and like when you're transgressing boundaries um which I think like Greek mythology does but Ovid and Catullus and whatnot do it more explicitly. Um, yeah. Because yeah, I was gonna say that when you read like Greek myth, they just focus more on the plot and on the characterization of the characters, like how do they behave. And when you when it comes to like the Roman world, um, they have the most maiorum, that's like the set of rules and um, like honor and these sorts of things that they have to like the values that they value more in their society and so the myths are always like really deepening into those values especially like the Aeneid because um it was asked of Virgil to write it like by the emperor because they wanted to give this like divine origin like they wanted Rome to have this divine origin so Aeneas is son of Aphrodite and therefore all Romans are like divine related um and so we can really see that like whereas Odysseus he had all this like great journey facing dangers and all 
uh, Ineas was just worried to get home, like to get to Rome and then do whatever his destiny was supposed to be. And Odysseus wasn't really caring about any destinies of any sorts. He was just doing as he seemed fit. Like he spent too many years with Calypso and with everybody like Cersei and he wasn't really like worried about any values that he was supposed to maintain so he just did things and Aeneas he really had like this like he abandoned Dido because he was supposed to like he couldn't be with her and so he's kind of pathetic in that way because he doesn't have much of a personality like no I want to do this then I'm doing it he just mm -hmm. follows what he's told to do yeah and I also thought it was uh so funny how um uh <laughs> Aeneas is the son of Aphrodite which is not typical for a Greek hero to be uh, usually Greek heroes are the sons of Poseidon or Zeus um, or those great gods. And then you get this uh, son of Aphrodite who's always described as beautiful and with gold in hair and like flowing and shining skin, which I love. And I thought that Virgil's style, um, I felt it was much more, it read much more like a modern tale. I don't know if that's because of the translation, but like the Odyssey and Iliad was, I can, even if it's translated, I can tell that it has like this oratory style. It's very, um, uh, it has a rhythm that kind of goes yeah. like, yeah. And then this um, Aeneid was more, it was I don't know, it's still a poem, but it was, it flowed more like a story that we're familiar with in modern times. And also, I really um, thought it was interesting how Virgil, between the stories, he did like these um, comparisons. So then he would compare these men like ants, and then he'd be like, just as the ants worked hard, these men worked hard as well. Or like, he would compare the blood squirting out as like, poppies like um like dying or something and then um things like that i thought that was really interesting um before, like yeah. before he wrote the Ennead, he wrote this really boring set of works and he talked about like the lives of bees and oh my like, shepherds georgia is it is oh. that god yeah, the George. And, Everything except for the fourth book sucks. Yeah. On the field singing and talking about how life in the city sucks. And bees. Yeah. It's like kind a, of bees. a farming <laughs> manual that isn't even accurate. When like, I, about, I think he listed seven facts about bees and none of them are correct. <laughs> it's yeah, because I, I did a research project on bees, and then I was like, I'm going to see what Virgil said about them, because everyone was like, oh, you should read, like, the bee book, and I was like, fine, I'll read the bee book, and then they were like, all the facts were wrong. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, the thing I hated the most, well, in Latin classes, because it was just so boring, and my teacher, she went on maternity leave, and we were with this really, really boring teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just set it up, and uh, and now we're seeing the end. I mean, before we left on vacation. 
and I just really liked it way better. Yeah, I, that actually reminded me of Hesiod's works and days. When I was reading it, I almost fell asleep when oh, he was God, describing all the farming methods and sailing oh, methods. No. <laughs> <laughs> Read this. Um, but you know, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was that was one that I skimmed and was like, Dylan will summarize the main points. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> okay, um, the next question I have is for you personally, um, and if you could um, predict or hypothesize, is that a word? Um, make a hypothesis about um, why do you think mythology and or classics is so appealing for you personally and for everyone else? Uh, for everyone else, I'll start with that. Yeah. Um, there's this notion that classics is kind of like the roots of civilization and whatnot and it's like, whoa, like great stories that appeal to everyone and I say this with like kind of mockingly, but um, I don't know, I think it's it's a kind of, like, harmful notion, almost, because, like, first of all, it's not really, like, the root of civilization, because, like, there were civilizations everywhere, um, not just in, like, Greece, um, and also, like, one thing that kind of intrigues me, I guess, about classics is, like, if you tell someone that you're studying classics or like Latin or ancient Greek, they're like, oh, whoa, so you're like super smart. But if you said that about like Mandarin or like ancient Chinese or like whatever other philosophy, they'd be like, oh, you know, like that's cool. You're like cultured. <laughs> but I guess classics has this association of like its whole like elitist past <laughs> that, um, kind of like wrapped up in that so people often like don't detach that from so when they go in um people who are generally like on the top of like privilege are like oh like everyone can relate to these the same because they've survived for so long that uh, everyone can just like escape from reality and read these stories um with the same kind of uh, perspective because it's been so long and none of us can really relate exactly to the ancient Greeks, but that doesn't matter. Um, and I guess um, what's appealing to me is that at first I like couldn't really relate to these stories, but I was like, you know, that's okay. I guess I'm like the same as everyone else. I can like just see these and be like, great, you know, they're good stories and they're detached from reality. And like, really like, they're not detached from the modern day because people will still use these myths to like justify certain things um especially if they're like kind of racist or classist or sexist they'll be like oh well the greeks said this so therefore it's fine um and that kind of like irks me a little bit so i'd say like the field of classes is pretty like polarized between like those kinds of people and then people who are like pretty progressive yeah so i guess like a bunch of classicists now are trying to find like uh, different perspectives on it and like diversity in the field is important because when you like go into a text you're gonna bring in all of your like biases with you 
um, which are different from person to person, but if you have, like, if you were raised with, like, European values and whatnot, you're probably gonna go in with, like, not too different of a perspective than the author, or, like, I don't know, more similar than someone who is raised on, like, Chinese values, let's say. Um, so, I guess when I go in, I don't really relate to the heroes as much, but I'm more, like, inclined to sympathize with characters who are kind of, like, on the side, and I really love books like Circe and um, Song of Achilles that <laughs> kind of bring out perspectives of characters that aren't really fleshed out as much in the original myths. Um, so I think that side of classics is really appealing to me. Yeah, what well, I was going to say, like, why this Greek mythology or mythology in general appealed to especially me, but everyone else, is that pop culture has a lot of references to it. Like, a lot of singers and films and actresses, they're doing this like sort of going back to like reference some of the myths and, or characters. Um, and besides that, it just really gives you a new perspective on things like how people used to like wonder about what the world was like and then tell the stories that are so different from the stories that we hear today because now we have like science and it like it limits our imagination and I just think like in a time when imagination was all there was basically it was like a lot different uh and you, when you study like mythology and classics in general you can live a little in that time and I just find it really like interesting yeah I think uh I really relate to what Emily said like you know I've always been fascinated about um, quote-unquote human stories so you know even though it's not like the definitive um, classic uh, of all of civilization it's an element of history that uh, even lasts today and is brought up many times today so that element of you know um, how you view characters how you view plot how you view how you use elements around you and then create like a story those things are really interesting to me in myth and yasi you mentioned a lot of you know the issues um surrounding some of the things that are in myth um things like misogyny xenophobia which obviously um their time was a total different time than mm -hmm. what we're living in today but because classic, uh, because mythology um, drags on and is so Im even important to our culture today, how do you guys think we can deal with these um, problematic, I, um, I would say, parts and elements of myth? I think um, just, oh, okay. you, <laughs> you can go first. You have to like separate what was written in a certain time by a certain culture from what reality is today because you really have to like understand that those people didn't have the same conceptions the same vocabulary the same notions as we do especially because we have developed so much like as a society and like 
regarding human rights and all these sorts of things like feminism movements, whereas the Greek society had no idea that like a, a thing like this could ever happen. So we have, I think we have to let go of our like biased opinions for a while just while exploring like what they wrote at that time and not bring it to our society like oh the Greeks said it so now it is still true because it was like materials are a consequence of a time period and so we just have to analyze it like in the position that those people were and not in our own because in that way we're like saying that they were like this retrograde people, but they actually weren't. It was just their culture. I read this book called like Not All Dead White Men by Donna Zuckerberg, which is really great at kind of illustrating how mythology gets like misappropriated by in particular like this community on Reddit called like the Red Pill. No, um, I okay, so can, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Um, I was listening to a podcast called Such Stuff Podcast. I think it's um by the Shakespeare Globe Theater, and Donna Zuckerberg was a guest in it, and she was talking about this, the red pill and her book. Yeah. Yeah, anyways, continue. <laughs> yeah, she's the editor in chief of Eidolon, which is this uh publication that focuses on kind of like modern reception of classics and like a lot of stuff on race and gender, especially. Um, so I guess like for the red pill, um, one example that stood out to me in particular was Ovid's Ars Amatoria, which is basically a manual of like how to get women to like you. But it's also like really gross. because It's like, oh, basically just like rape them. Um, and it was like, yikes. And then she was like, it was like, there are a lot of debates as to whether, like, it was a satire on, like, Ovid's part, because a lot of it is, like, so genuinely, like, outlandish that it's, like, you couldn't, like, possibly get, like, do any of this in, like, societal norms, but um, the red pill kind of just takes it as, like, a literal manual of how to, like, get women, um, so that's like one way that it's misappropriated and also in um ancient rome and greece women were objects or like treated as objects um and rape was kind of like it was a damaging a property of either the woman's husband or father um instead of a violation of her rights like she didn't have any say in it really her consent like didn't matter in the ancient world um so that's like a huge gap of between like then and now but what a lot of what the red pill does is like because these stories are from the west it gives them authority not like any other like part of it just because it's from the west um so i think acknowledging that bias and like if you're gonna give something authority you have to examine it as Ellie said like in the context that it was written first of all and second of all like it has to have some other authority than just like it was from Europe <laughs> um, because although like there are a lot of great European texts like just because it's from Europe doesn't give it authority. 
Yeah, um, just to also clarify, I don't think I introduced this properly when we were first talking about There's also um, a lot of things we were discussing in class about the representation of female characters, especially in Greek myth, um, how they're viewed as um, evil or witches or deceptive, uh, scheming <laughs> creatures. There's a, there's a really important element um, distinguished between what it was like then and now when we interpret this text, we can't just take it word for word. We need to take it in context and situation, as Annalise said. Um, and an example from Helen Morales's classical mythology from the chapter six, sexual politics of myth that we were supposed to read. Um, she talked about the story of the rape of the Sabine women in Rome and how um, in, in this novel, called, short story called The Sabine Women, um, this was retold in 1850s Oregon, and it was also um, made into a very popular musical called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and this exact scene is shown. And it's not really shown in a way that's um, reproaching or condemning um, this uh, rape scene. It's almost glorifying. I haven't watched the musical or read the story, but based on what Morales says, it's not putting in a critical light. So I think it's really important that nuance of what you do with it when you take it to a modern context. Um, and, you know, many good things can happen from this as well as um, I think, Yassi, you mentioned uh, Circe, the book by uh, Madeline Miller, which in Helen Morales's chapter, um, she also talks about something called psychic activism as like a counter movement to like all of this problems in myth. So when you take those stories and retell it, you um, tell it through a different perspective. So like a feminist perspective would be like retelling it through the female character's perspective or giving more agency and power and respect to, you know, people who were cast as witches like Circe and Medea um, instead of calling them witches, you call them scientists or people who were ahead of their time in their ability. I just thought of one thing about like Madeline Miller's Cersei. There's a specific scene when there's like she, Cersei is raped and it is described in such a different way than it would have been in like original Greek myths. And I think that's a way in which you can like take something that was common and mythology, like that time that rape was really common, like Rome was built uh, on it, like the Sabines. Um, and so you just take it and problematize it in a natural way, like she did with Cersei. So that was like the motive why she started turning men into pigs. And so it just really like added up to the story in a way that actually modernized it and also made it more relatable like it is natural now because it actually makes sense of all of these you know issues and 
difference between modern and ancient values. Can you say that these ancient Greek values that are um, portrayed in myths are still relevant today? Some prominent ones that I think I'm thinking of are Cleos, which is like this heroic glory, and um, Xenia, the guest friendship. Um, and I was thinking these things, I don't know if we can say that they still are as prominent as they were today, especially in a post-World War II um, increasingly individualized society. I don't know if these glorious young male uh, heroes fighting in war, dying in war, um, and all these people accepting uh, strangers into their house, treating them, those kind of things. I don't know if um, we can see that uh, being very uh, held as values these days. Yeah, I know like one of the amendments in uh, the US Constitution is like you can't force someone to hold people in your house if you don't want to. So that's like kind of Xenia is not a norm here. Um, but yeah, I think some of the values are kind of, they still exist today, but like more watered down because of, yeah, individualism. Um, and people's sense of honor is more um, kind of conceptual than just based on, you know, um, physical objects. Um, so that's like the whole Iliad thing out the window. Like, I doubt there would be another war over just like one person. Um, okay, maybe that's a lie because like World War One was started by like some guy getting shot. Yeah, <laughs> Arctic Ferdinand, I think. Yeah, um, but I guess like kidnapping someone's wife would just start like a lawsuit instead of a war. Yeah. And I was thinking yeah. that was really interesting because the reason why I mentioned that it's a post-World War II society is because um, I know that during the war, before the war, and um, there were a lot of young boys who thought that it was respectable of them and uh, the right thing to do to go and fight for their country. And it was the, the way they portrayed this fight into battle for their country, willing to die for their country is, um, I obviously I'm not an expert, but it seemed to me very similar to this um, Greek heroic um, charge into battle and this, you know, kind of desire almost of this young, glorified, beautiful death. Um, but then after World War II, I feel like these attitudes really shifted after, you know, the wars became just uh, so much more hard, so much harsher. And um, obviously, society became more um, focused on individual families, individual people, rather than this nationalism, loyalty to your country kind of thing. Yeah, what I think about was like, this Captain America image, and he was like, he wanted to go to the war and like be a hero and then he became Captain America. Uh, and then he has this, like when he comes to like modern time, he has his values and basically no one else has them. Mm. So it kind of has this contrast. And I really think that like, 
these values, they didn't like cease to exist. They just shifted into something else that like the glory can, the Cleos that was like glory in battle to fulfill your destiny, it actually changed into being like successful in a like economical point of view and like have a stable family, having a stable job and these sorts of things that are now like the values that aren't actually like praised. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you, when you said about like, um, that value that's like getting people into your house even though you don't want it. There's this novel by Khaled Hosseini, it's called The Kite Runner, and it really talks about like this, especially in the Middle West, uh, in the Middle East, um, that there are this like culture of you having to receive the person and you have to, to like, um, lay to your guests like all the best food the best bedroom the best bed the best everything and it, that person can stay for as long as they need and you cannot do anything about it because that's like their culture until these days so i think in some sort of way it was like it's still there there still is this sort of like notion of yeah. um, guest friendship but only in a couple of isolated places. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's also really important to recognize that, you know, this, uh, this society that we're describing of being individual and very um, almost like self-centered, it's not for everywhere in the world, obviously. Uh, most of it is in like really met metropolitan areas um, like Japan or these big East Asian countries these big Western countries. So speaking of the values and the changing of values, um, things like that, based uh, from our collective limited amount of knowledge, um, do you think we can figure out what the purpose of mythology, especially Greek mythology, was uh, back then and now um, in a very, you know, basic level? <laughs> yeah. Uh kind of like drawing off of that discussion we had in class yesterday um back then it was used to like legitimize certain people in power and um certain like customs and values that the greeks had um whereas now like as it becomes like increasingly detached from that context it's more kind of like something to bounce off for fantasy stories um and it's just mainly used for entertainment because in a way i feel like that was their literature like mythology was their sort of literature and it still hasn't changed that much because authors still use like books and whatever they're writing as a means to like um pass on certain values and critiques of their time. So I feel just like when it comes, when it came to Greek power, it was more of like, uh, yes, he said, legitimizing. And today we use them as like a form of exploring what was like once reality. Um, yeah, like I think as uh, Ellie said, they are, uh, that was their literature back then. But I think also something that makes mythology unique is that it was also their religion. Um, 
So some of the things I listed for the purpose of myth then was obviously making sense of the world, the natural and human world back then, and expressing their desires and passions, which lead to some strange stories, <laughs> um, uh, and justifying things. Obviously, there's an element of didactic um, teachings, things like that. And one thing I wanted to mention is, do you remember that discussion post thing that we had a couple of weeks ago when we talked about fate and elements uh, that make up a tragic hero, that make a hero? Like that. I remember writing how especially epic stories are expressions of Greek expressions of human limitations and their anxieties of uncertainties that come up in life because even though these heroes are formidable they have you know much greater power than normal humans they still are subject to limitations failures destiny things like that and yes yeah, so you you mentioned that one of the qualities of being a hero is to being um respectful to the gods and not neglecting them and I thought that was really interesting because of just how much the Greeks depend on the gods. Like the Greek society revolved around worship and praise to the gods, things like that. So I think that mythology was, I guess, a way of almost coping with things that you know you can't control in life um, and try to explain things that you can't control in life and try to find ways that you can um, do when you can't control things in life. If you can share um, what your future plans for studies and careers are, if, especially if it's related to mythology or classics. But, um, my major interests are like literature and philosophy. So I guess I'm gonna like a double major on comparative literature and philosophy so I can work with that and maybe give classes um, and uh, I really like writing like I'm taking another course in the session of like fiction writing and so I think I'm gonna like pursue a writer's career maybe <laughs> I don't know that's so cool because you know I was talking um, yesterday I had the opportunity to um, talk to the writer, director, and the writer and director of a new Disney movie, and then the executive vice president of Disney. And a question I asked was, you know, related to their storytelling element. And I said that I was always fascinated with the storytelling aspect of entertainment. And then I told them that I was taking a Greek mythology course. Um, as, a, as, as a justification for me liking stories. So I think that's really interesting that you um, are interested in pursuing a writing career um, with an interest in mythology, because I think that really helps. I just remembered a book that's called, it's, it's really famous. Uh, it's Neil Gaiman's um, American Gods, that he like took a really modern approach to mythology, because he was like, the plot is basically that the old gods, like the ancient gods, and he mentions like several of them, like Indy and Norse mythology, Greek mythology, Roman, all these sorts of things. 
they were actually replaced by modern gods, such as like television, internet, credit cards that we worship them right now instead of like the ancient divinities. And they're basically planning on like taking over again. But we have managed to like get this um, new gods really, really powerful because basically our world revolves around them. And I just, I love Neil Gaiman. Like I think he's brilliant because he wrote another book on Norse mythology. Um, and I really, really recommend it. it. Was he the guy who also wrote Good Omens? Yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen um, American Gods at the bookstore, and I, that's also on my um, to-read list. I have so many. <laughs> it's one of my favorite books, like, ever. I really, really like it. Okay, um, the final segment I have is called A Few of My Favorite Things. The first one is um, Mythological Character, or it could be a creature. I think for me it's definitely Artemis because I love her. <laughs> Particular reason or just? First she's like this really independent, like I'm not gonna have any male companions in my life. Yeah. Hunters. And she has this bunch of like um, women who follow her through the moon and the sorts of adventures and she's the moon and i love the moon and it's just all like really connected to nowadays we know that there's like the moon calendar that actually like relates to um a menstruation calendar and so oh, i just yeah. really connected it to like artemis being this woman who's like really rebellious for the time yeah. and i just love this idea yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I think uh, for me, maybe like Hermes, because <laughs> he, he's kind of like, he's the god of tricks, right? But <laughs> it's kind of funny that he's not as problematic as most of the other gods, Yeah. Um, especially like Zeus <laughs> and Apollo. Um, but yeah, he kind of just does his own thing, and especially his whole story of like, being a young kid who just casually steals Apollo's cattle, I think that's really funny. I also love Hermes, the fact that he just pops up in every single myth, and he's like, he's like the... He's just the messenger, like... I know. He's like, I bet he's on speed dial of every god's phone. <laughs> when in doubt, call Hermes. Yeah. I love that. Okay, um, number two, if you were a demigod, like in Percy Jackson, I know you guys probably have thought of this question many times in your childhood, whose um, daughter would you be? People always say Hades for me. I'm like, I don't know why people are like, oh, you seem like a Hades person. And I'm like, I mean, okay, like, if you say so. <laughs> I mean, you get to be Nico's brother, which I, I love. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, people always say that I'm, like, Athena's daughter. I agree. Like, not physically as it is put in Percy Jackson, but, I mean, because of my personality, like, I love to, like, read. Like, I read a lot. Like, I have my, all my books, like, laying around. Like, <laughs> And I just really like like logic things, and I just so and everybody always told me like, oh, 
you're, you're not even in the discussion. Like, you're Athena's daughter. Okay. Um, the next question is, your favorite pop culture or modern adaptation of um, a myth? It could be film, movie, book. I mean, film and movie, same. Movie, book, uh, anything. Oh, probably the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. What is it about? Like, why is it called the Song of Achilles? Yeah, it's um, kind of like the Iliad from uh, Patroclus' perspective. Um, yeah, but it kind of just explores like the relationship between him and Achilles um, in much more detail than the Iliad really allows for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely more focused on like emotions and whatnot other than just like rage. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, how in our um, quiz in Greek mythology, um, one of the answers was, like, Achilles' rage. So iconic. I feel for me, one of, like, the best, I think, adaptations would be Circe. I really liked reading it. Like, Madeline Miller really hit the nail, like, hit the nail in the head for me. Um, and okay. besides that, it would be, like, American Gods, because they're both like really, really modern approaches to the original history, so. A favorite um, piece, so like an original text. And if you know, um, then your favorite translation with it. Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. <laughs> um, I just think like she does a good job of really bringing it into like a modern context almost not like really a context but making it like accessible to your everyday reader without putting like all this unnecessary like jargon and super fancy words into it um and she really gets like the general like attitudes of each character in a way that like the first translation of the odyssey that i read like didn't really do that um and she wrote the whole thing in iambic pentameter I think mm-hmm. um, which I think is really cool because it's super long and she like took the time to do that. Um, I think for me is like a specific part of, um, of uh, Luc- Luc- I don't know how to say it in English like Lucretio's um, De Rerum Natura that's like uh, the invocation of um, Venice that's really like oh <laughs> It's really beautiful, and it has this whole, like, poetic tone, and it, I, I don't know, I just really like it, because it, it really, like, it really rings to my ears when I read it, and I mean, like, the original um, text. Okay, last one I have is any general recommendations. It could be anything, um, any of the things that you mentioned before or it could be things like articles websites uh journals things like that yeah i feel like i already touched on this a little bit but eidolon um great resource for you know just general readership and like connecting yeah okay Um, i'll link the thing below once i find it yeah um 
I don't know. It's just really great at connecting like ancient and modern things, um, especially in their like social context. So enjoy reading articles from that. to contact us and send us any feedback questions or requests on our instagram at am asks podcast and twitter at am underscore avenue and feel free to leave a comment on any platform that includes a comment space thank you so much guys for talking uh with me today and answering some of my questions about myths it was a lot of fun i feel like i learned a lot even <laughs> just talking to you guys and I'll be sure to check those books out that you've recommended. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.